0: I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 14. The, um, um, my family and I are going to be out of town for the next two Wednesday nights, and so uh, it didn't seem uh, appropriate to start a new series uh, and then have to interrupt it and then you know, start it again when we get back. So tonight I want to just teach something that's... Uh, well, I started to say it's on my heart, but to be honest with you, it's always on my heart. It's, uh, it's uh, something that, uh, that I spend as much time or more time studying on and meditating on than anything else in the Scripture. I'm fascinated by the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of John. The reason for it is in John chapter 13, it tells us about Jesus having the Last Supper with his disciples. He washes their feet. Uh, he shares the, the information with them about the Last Supper and whatever to whatever degree he explained to them about, uh, what, about the meaning thereof. He said this... Um, Bread is my body which is broken for you, and this cup is my blood in the new covenant and so forth. Then, uh, of course, Judas goes out, and then Jesus gives them the new commandment in verse 34, John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give you that that you love one another. The 14th and 15th and 16th chapters of John are unlike anything that we have uh, recorded in Scripture. Uh, The other gospel writers give us, uh, for the most part, give us an accurate account a detailed account of what took, took place at the Last Supper. But John comes back some, well, it was written somewhere between 90 and 95 A.D. So it could have been as much as uh, 50 years, 55 years perhaps, uh, after the, the first of the Gospels were written. The, uh, the dates are approximate and estimated and so forth. So we don't know exactly for sure, but, but we do know this. We know that John knew of the other three Gospels that were out there when he wrote his. And he comes in and and, uh, I started to say fills in the blanks, but that really doesn't describe it in my opinion. He gives us information after the fact that the Holy Ghost reminded him of things that he's known for 60 years since the crucifixion of Jesus. He's an old man, I guess, at age 90 uh, or during the the 90 AD, 90 to 95 AD. We don't know exactly how old he would be, but uh, we do know he would be an older man. And, um, And then he comes back after the fact as he's inspired by the Holy Ghost and gives a record of things that nobody else gave us. Now, John is an eyewitness account, he being there, but so is Matthew. Matthew was an eyewitness account, but he wasn't impressed of the Holy Ghost to say the things that John did and and to give us the record. And so the the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of John are just fascinating to me because it's Jesus' last time, last opportunity, last night with the disciples. Judas has gone out of the room, so just talking to the ones that are close to him, the ones that are going to carry on the work, I put myself in that in Jesus' position. What would I have wanted to, to tell these guys? Knowing what I know now about the new birth, knowing what I know about who we are in Christ, the little bit that I know about who we are in Christ and so forth, what would you want to share with these guys? What would you want them to know? Jesus obviously picked the most important things and the key elements of, uh, of Christianity to share with them, knowing that he's still talking to spiritually dead men. And so I guess that limits somewhat what he could say and, and uh, how much detail he could go into. But Jesus starts talking about going to the Father. Let's start in chapter 14, verse 1. Well, I'm not going to read the whole of these, these uh, chapters by any means, but I'm going to skip around a little bit and, and get the context because Jesus keeps going from one theme to another theme, but really it's just different ways of, of describing and explaining the same thing. "'Let not your heart be troubled,' verse 1. "'You believe in God, believe also in me. "'In my Father's house are many mansions.'" The word mansions, translated mansions, is the word dwelling places or abodes. It doesn't mean houses. He's talking about being in him. He's not talking about living in a house in heaven. But he says, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Now, here's the the crux of the issue. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am... Notice it's not where I'm going there, you may be also, but where I am there, you may be also. Now, without getting into a lot of detail, let me just tell you what he's talking about. He's talking about the place that he has in union with God. And he says, I'm going to go make that place for you. He's talking about a spiritual work. It's always fascinated me. Well, I heard it as a kid and didn't think anything about it. But the church that I grew up in told us that Jesus is in heaven building mansions. And as soon as he gets everybody's mansion built... Then he's going to come back for the church. God made the universe in six days. But somehow or another Jesus must be having trouble finding lumber and nails to get everything done. For thousands of years he's not finished yet. Well that's silly. He's not building anything. He's not hammering nails in heaven. He's not building houses in heaven. This isn't, eternity is not a housing project. He's talking about the place in him with the father. He's saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And isn't that exactly what he did? Didn't his death on the cross cause him to pay the price, not just physically, but spiritually, pay the price for for sin and death? The Bible says the wages of sin is death. So he had to die spiritually. Somebody had to die spiritually for the sins of mankind that started with Adam in the Garden of Eden. That's That's the price Jesus paid. Now, Jesus is going to talk about his own new birth in this discourse with the disciples. But he's saying, he knows very well what's going to happen. Even though he didn't give them a lot of details, we can piece together things from the scripture. But Jesus is telling them, I'm going to go prepare a place for you and I'm coming back. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to die, but I'm going to be raised again from the dead. I'm going to come back for you. I'm going to go prepare that place in him. That place for you with God, which we know is in Christ. And I'm going to come back for you. He's not talking about coming back for the rapture of the church. He's talking about, I'm going to come back... And tell you about that place so you can get saved. But let me ask you a question. What do these guys know about being saved? Nothing. Nobody's ever been saved. Jesus does not say, I'm going to go get a, prepare a place so that you can get saved. That would mean nothing to these guys. But he simply, he talks to them in simple terms that they can understand. I'm going away and I'm coming back for you. Philip starts saying things about, show us the father. Father. And we'll be happy with that we'll be satisfied with that and Jesus said how long have you been with me Philip he that's seen me has seen the father now Philip is saying show us what the father looks like Jesus is saying I've shown you what the father says and how he operates he has seen me has seen the father Philip's thinking naturally he's thinking I want to see God with my eyes boy if you could just see see God with your eyes then that would be it because that was something even Moses couldn't do so when Jesus talks about showing them the Father and re- revealing the Father to them, these guys from a Jewish mindset are thinking, gee, not even Moses could do that. So show us. Let us see the Father. Jesus is, is saying, no, you don't understand. It's not a natural eyesight that I want to show you. I've shown you the Father through the words that I've spoken. I've shown you the Father through the things that I've done. Skip with me down to verse 12. He said, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me... The works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go into my Father. He's still talking about the same thing. He's talking about him going to the Father and coming back for you. He's talking salvation. What do they think he's talking about? Who knows? They don't get the idea. they don't get the concept. They do not have the understanding. Of him coming back, being away, can't be seen, and then coming back after a period of time. They do not get that. Even though the Bible says before the Last Supper, he plainly taught them. Luke says he plainly taught them that he was going to Jerusalem, going to be crucified and resurrected from the dead three days later. Why they don't get it beats me. I guess the answer is because they're still spiritually dead men. Maybe that's all the explanation there is. So he said... um, the works, verily, verily, I say saying to you, verse 12 again, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I have gone to my Father. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. This word ask is not the word request. It's not the word that's translated pray or prayer in the New Testament. He's talking about calling for, requiring, demanding something in his name. Now, again, we've used this example before, but when you write a check... On your checking account, you're making a demand on the deposits you have in the bank. You don't do it with an arrogant attitude. Your attitude is not the issue. What is the issue is who you make the check out to and how much it's for. That's the only issue when it comes to you drawing on your checking account. That's exactly the illustration that we can plug in here for what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I've got everything on deposit. What I'm going to provide for you and making a place for you with the Father puts the riches of heaven on deposit whatever you call for require demand in my name that's what i'll do now how do we call for require demand in the name of jesus we speak we exercise our will through the spoken word so if that's what he means if that's the basis of what he's talking about then listen let's translate it that way and see what it says The works that I do shall he do also. He that believeth in me, the works that I do shall he do also. And even greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you shall speak in my name, that will I do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Notice verse 14. If you shall speak anything, same word, ask, call for a required demand. If you shall speak anything in my name, I will do it. Now, folks, if we stopped right there. If we don't read any further with what we know that Jesus is doing uh, and preparing them for and and, uh, telling them about what's going on, knowing that he's going to go to the cross, knowing that he's going to spend three days in the heart of the earth paying the price for mankind, dying spiritually, literally, and paying the price for mankind's sins. Three days later, he's going to be raised from the dead. Three days after his death, he's going to be raised from the dead. And when he's raised from the dead... He's going to proclaim to the disciples, breathe on them, say, Receive the Holy Ghost, and proclaim to them the new birth or the life of God that they now have with their Heavenly Father. Knowing that's what Jesus is getting to, knowing that they don't understand this, what would you take away if you were one of the disciples? What would you take away from this discourse that Jesus is trying to tell us about what's going to change? What's going to be different? certainly something's going to be different he's talking about going away and coming back again what's he going away for and if it's just hey i'm going to be out of town for a day or two then why is he talking about a change of position why is he talking about a difference in the way things are going to operate why bring up this stuff about the works that i do shall he do also if you believe in my name and even greater works what's that about if this is just him going away And there's no significance, there's no spiritual significance, there's no difference or change that's going to occur to them. Why is he talking to them about this stuff? Do you understand what I'm getting at? Well, knowing that there is a change that he's talking about, if you were one of the disciples, if you stop reading by the end of chapter, or by the end of verse 14 in chapter 14 of John, what would you take from this? He's talking about the exercise of authority. He's talking about the exercise of authority. He's saying the things you're going to change is the exercise of authority. Now, let me tell you what he didn't say. He did not say... Now, remember, it's real important for you guys to remember the Old Testament principles. Remember, God told Moses about the children of Israel. As you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. Remember Proverbs 18.21, I think it is. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. He that loveth it shall eat the fruit thereof. Remember the principle... That you can have what you say. That is not what he's saying. That is not anywhere close to what he's saying. He is not saying. Now I'm going to go away. And when I come back. I'll have, I'll have prepared a place for you. And then you can be where I am. And remember the principle of your words being important. That is not what he's saying folks. You need to also remember that Mark 11 has already taken place. Where Jesus has cursed the fig tree. He's taught them. As, as, as clearly as he can to spiritually dead men about believing in your heart and saying with your mouth and your words come to pass Mark chapter 5 the woman with the issue of blood has already taken place where he explains your faith has made you whole well what was her faith her faith was as soon as I heard about Jesus I began to say if I can just touch his clothes I shall be whole there is example after example every example that we have in the gospels John's included has already taken place where they have seen and whether they get it or not, I guess that's up for debate. But at least they've been taught about the importance of believing in your heart and saying with your mouth. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying it's going to be different. He's saying it's going to be different because of the different place that you have. See, folks, you need to realize death and life are in the power of the tongue didn't work because they were in Christ. Death and life are in the power of the tongue didn't work because of the relationship they had with God. Death and life are in the power of the tongue worked because of the relationship they had with Abraham who had a covenant with God. Now it's about a relationship in Christ with the Father. And that changes everything. If I could get anything across to you tonight, it is that your relationship, the one that you take for granted perhaps, the one that you don't put the effort into like you should perhaps, The one that was established by us accepting Jesus as the Lord and Savior of our lives. Now what what we've done with that is up to the individual. You know as well as I do that some people accept Jesus as fire insurance and then go through life doing their own thing. And others take the relationship with God very seriously. And they apply themselves to growth and development in spiritual things. But whatever it is, Jesus is saying that relationship. That being in Christ and joined and united with God, one with God in the same way. Jesus talks about this in, in great detail. He said, you'll be in the Father just like I'm in the Father. And Jesus said being in the Father was the source of anything and every great work he did. He's trying to tell them. He's trying to get it across to them. Again, whether they got it or not, probably not. At least not to the degree that he wanted them to. Probably not to the degree that that they needed to. But it's all hinged on one and only one thing, and that is relationship with God. I'm going to the Father. I'm coming back. And when I come back, believing in my name brings you into that place I've prepared for you. You'll do the same works that that I do in greater works. And whatsoever you speak in my name, I will do. If you speak anything in my name, I will do it. Chapter 15. Jesus starts talking about something that to some might seem unrelated or a different topic, but it's not. It's the same exact topic. It's relationship with God through him. He starts talking about, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Notice what he says in verse 2. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he takes away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can you except you abide in me. Skip down with me to verse 7. If you abide in me, he's talking relationship. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask. Same word used over in chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. Call for or require. Speak. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall speak what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein, verse 8, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Chapter 14, he's talking about, bearing, he's talking about doing works. Chapter 15, he's talking about bearing fruit. What's the difference? None. Not a a difference in the world. Different illustration to to point out the truth. but He's talking about exactly the same thing. If works don't get it, let's talk about bearing fruit. Now, let me stop and and ask you a question. Let us ask you to to consider something. And that is that when, when we talk about bearing fruit for Jesus, what do we think of? We think of getting people saved. We think about ministering the gospel. We think about handing out tracts or doing something to affect somebody's spiritual well-being. That is not what Jesus is talking about bearing fruit. What do these guys know about getting saved? They're not saved themselves. Jesus does not say, Bear, uh, abide in me and make sure my word abides in you so that you'll be good ministers. So that you'll be effective in preaching the gospel. That's not what he's talking about. Now, does he want them to be effective in preaching the gospel? Sure. But is that what he's talking about? Is that the topic of his conversation? Nope, not even close. He's not commissioning them to anything. And if anybody would know, it would be John, who now, some 60 years after this event has taken place, maybe 60 to 65 years after this event has taken place, this night took place. He knows the status of the church, he knows about the preaching of the gospel, he knows about ministry. In greater degree than anybody else on the face of the earth at that time. Peter is gone. John, uh, Paul is gone. The pillars are dead. Except for John. The church is wondering if this guy will ever die. Because everything they try to do to kill him doesn't work. And John recounts that Jesus does not talk to him about being ministers. He talks to them about doing the works that he did. He talks to them about bearing fruit. And what is that fruit? What is the fruit that glorifies God? Notice again in verse 7, if you abide in me, relationship, and my words abide in you. Notice it's based on the word. You shall speak what you will. Now some people get all hinky about that and they think, well... That means we could, if if your interpretation is correct, Pastor Mike, that means we could just say anything that we want. Well, if the Word abides in you, you're not going to say just anything and everything out there. The Word of God abiding you shows you the character and the nature of God. It's going to cause you to walk in the love of God, so it's not going to be something you get crazy about and say ungodly things or speak to or pray for or seek after ungodly things. The Word will set the boundaries for your life. Well, what are those boundaries? The will of God. The character and the nature of Jesus himself. Do you, you do realize, of course, that Jesus could have said anything in the world that he wanted and it would have been done. You get that, don't you? Well, why wasn't God worried about that? Can you see God standing, in, uh, sitting in heaven wringing his hands every day wondering if Jesus is going to go too far? Why not? Because he was filled with the character and nature of his father. If you abide in him and his word abides in you, you'll be filled with the character and the nature of your father too. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall speak what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein, verse 8, herein, in this manner, you saying what you will in the name of Jesus and it coming to pass. Herein is my father glorified and Jesus calls that bearing much fruit. What's he talking about? He's talking about the exercise of authority. What glorifies God? You doing the works of Jesus. How do we do those? Through the exercise of authority. What glorifies God? You bearing much fruit. How do we do that? Through the exercise of authority. How do we exercise our authority? By speaking in the name of Jesus. Now, folks, I want to back up and say it again and forgive me for being repetitive, but I really want this to sink in. This is the last night Jesus has with these guys. We would all have to understand that Jesus is going to give them what he considers to be the most important message to hold them over until he comes back. What does Jesus consider to be the most important message? The exercise of authority. And if I'm reading something into this, it's not there. Somebody please tell me. But he says it over and over and over again. We're still in chapter 15. Notice Jesus said in verse 14, he said, you are my friends. If you do whatsoever, I command you. Now, you remember chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, he's already told them what the commandment is. A new love, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I've loved you so shall you love one another. Verse 35 goes on to say, By this, the love of God in operation, by this shall all men know you are my disciples, if you have love one toward another. So when he talks about keeping his commandments, he's not talking about something new he's going to bring about. He's not talking about something he hadn't shared with them yet. He's talking about keeping the commandment of love, walking in the commandment of love, because that is part of the love of God, or the word of God abiding in you. The word of God can't be abiding in you unless you're walking in love. Because God is love. So he said, You're my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. If you walk in love, in other words. Henceforth, I call you no more servants. For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. Now, this word friends means a covenant partner, it's a relationship term. It doesn't just mean acquaintance, it means somebody in covenant with. Henceforth I call you no more servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Notice the difference between a servant and a covenant partner with Jesus. One knows what Jesus will do, what the Father will do, the other does not. How are we going to find that out? Through the Word, the Word of God abiding in you. The part of the church world, the majority of the church world that doesn't know who God is, doesn't know his character, doesn't know his nature, doesn't know what he'll do in any given situation, you know what they don't know? They don't know the word because the word reveals that to us. It's the whole purpose for the word of God is to reveal the character and the nature of God. Jesus said, Henceforth I call you no more servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Now notice the relationship. He's talking about a relationship with God or with him literally to reveal the father notice what he connects that with in verse 16 you have not chosen me but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit chapter 14 was about doing works chapter 15 is about bearing fruit same subject just different ways of looking at the same thing you've not chosen me but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit please notice he's already defined in verses 7 and 8 what bringing forth fruit is Your word's coming to pass because of your relationship with God, abiding in him, and the word of God abiding in you. He has not changed subjects. So he says, I've called you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, that what you say in the name of Jesus should come to pass. But in case we don't make that connection, in case they didn't make the connection, notice what he goes further to say you've not chosen me but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain God wants fruit to remain God wants the things that you speak in the name of Jesus to last that your fruit should remain that whatsoever you shall ask same word call for require demand speak literally whatsoever you shall speak to the Father in my name he may give it you how do, we bear for, how do we bear fruit? How do we bring forth fruit that remains? By speaking in the name of Jesus. Now, folks, get the, get the picture here. Get what Jesus is saying. He is not saying pray. He hasn't talked about praying yet, but here he's talking about speaking to the Father. Before, he was talking about speaking in his name. Whatever you say in my name, I will do it. So Jesus hears what you say then, Obviously. Here he's talking about speaking to the Father in the name of Jesus. Why? Because your relationship in Christ is with the Father. That's going to be important with what he says in the next chapter. Keep that in mind. Jesus seems to indicate, uh, hold your finger here and turn back with me to Mark chapter 11. Let me show you something. Mark chapter 11, the story of Jesus cursing the fig tree. If you're around here very much, you know the verses by heart, perhaps. If you don't yet, stick around, you will. Jesus explains to the disciples how the fig tree dried up from the roots the following morning it says in verse 22, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he says shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Notice there's not one mention made in verse 23 about prayer. Not one. He's not talking about speaking in the name of Jesus because he is not talking about. The operation of faith that was, uh, that was uh, uh, used when Jesus was here with his disciples is not the measure of faith that he's talking about being used after the resurrection. This is not based on relationship. This is just based on the Old Testament principle because of Abraham's covenant. You've got a different relationship. You've got a different basis for believing in your heart and saying with your mouth. Notice there's not one mention made of of praying in verse 23 of Mark chapter 11. Not one. He said, Whosoever shall say unto the mountain. He didn't say whosoever shall pray to God about the mountain. He said whosoever shall say or speak to the mountain. Now notice verse 24. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray. Now he's talking about praying. Notice the way Jesus makes the transition between speaking to the circumstances and praying to the Father. He doesn't make it the ritual that the church does. He doesn't say, now, 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 when you pray, uh, that's a sacred and holy thing. So you got to make sure that everything's right and, you know, all oh, your cell phone's turned off and you get by yourself in your closet and, Nonetheless, uh, he makes a simple transition from between speaking to the circumstances and praying to the Father. Please keep that in mind because that's what prayer should be. Your prayer life should be a combination of speaking and then talking to the Father. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Now, he's talking about prayer. He didn't say one thing about believing that, the, that you receive a, mo- uh, a moved mountain. In verse 23. What really got my attention on this one time. And and this was years. I'd been with Brother Hagin for several years. And I heard him make a statement. That I'd never heard him make before. And it took me totally by surprise. Because he made it so off the cuff. Like everybody already knew. And and I asked him about it. Man I pinned him down on it after the service. I said wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You said something that I've never heard you say before. Well he got tickled and said well of course. Like you dummy." But here's what he said. He said, when I was healed from the bed of sickness as a 17-year-old boy, when I was healed on the bed of of sickness from the deformed heart and the blood disease and all the other stuff that, that was going wrong with him or that was wrong with him, he said, I was healed on a combination of speaking the word concerning my circumstances and praying the prayer of faith. I'd never heard that before. I'd never heard that before because what happened to me and what my experience was up to that point was that I'd get twisted up because the natural inclination for me is to speak to the circumstances and then talk to God but those are two different elements of mark 11:23 versus mark 11:24 and so I'm thinking here I'm getting ritualistic about stuff my mistake please don't make the same one I did But I was ritualistic about the thing saying, wait a minute, it can't be faith by the spoken word and the prayer of faith at the same time. Those don't work together, but they're supposed to work together. It's natural for them to work together. That's why Jesus put them together here. If it was just the operation of speaking to the tree and prayer was not involved and was not intended to be involved, why did Jesus include verse 24? Because verse 23 is how the fig tree died. So, Jesus, why are you telling us about the prayer of faith? Why are you talking about when we pray, believe, we receive? What's that about and why? Are you out there? But folks, your prayer life, faith as a part of your prayer life is supposed to be a natural flow between speaking to the circumstances and talking to God. And here's why. Because if you just rely on the spoken word, speaking the word to your circumstances, then you can come off thinking it's just you and you being a great person of faith. But if you include a conversation with the Father, it reminds you that we have the privilege of walking by faith. We have the privilege of speaking in the name of Jesus and having what we say because we are one with the Father in Him, in Christ. And that's huge. Because relationship is everything. Lester Summerall made a statement one time that I'll never forget. The longest long day I live, I will never forget this statement. He said, it was a back room of, um, uh, after a service, and some of the, the people in the room were the most well-known ministers of the day, guys I could call their name, and, and you'd know exactly who they are, and have listened to a lot of their tapes and followed their ministries and so forth. And this was 35 years ago. And so some of them are talking about what the, what's going on in their ministries and some of them are talking about, well, I'm having this problem and, and we need the finances or the funds for this and I believe in God but the money hadn't come yet and this kind of thing, just, just back and forth. Everybody's telling their story. And Lester Sumrall sitting there and just very calmly, very simply, wasn't really talking to any one person in the room, just kind of set it out to the whole room. He said, if my faith's not working, I don't examine my faith. I examine my relationship with God. And everybody else shut up. Started excusing themselves. Left the room from the oldest to the youngest. Because what he's saying. What Lester is saying is what is so easy to forget. Because you can get caught up in the rituals. The ritual elements of faith. Believe in my heart. Say with my mouth. Have I made my confessions today? Kind of stuff. But folks faith is a result of a relationship with God. And if it's not based on a relationship with God. It's not working anyhow. Back to John chapter 15. Again, verse 16 You have not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you. I want you to understand something, folks. God has ordained, planned from the beginning of time that this is the way that it's supposed to be. I have ordained you that you should bring forth fruit. God planned before Jesus ever came to the earth, before God ever made Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden, before Adam and Eve ever sinned. God planned for you to speak. In the name of Jesus and your words to come to pass. It's a plan of God. When you realize that, it becomes a whole lot less about you and you doing your thing. And making sure you do everything right. And it becomes an appreciation for your Heavenly Father. Which is what faith is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a relationship. You've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. And that your fruit should remain what's fruit you having what you say and whatsoever you shall call for require speak in my name or speak to the father in my name he may give it to you turn with me over to chapter 16 we're running out of time we'll have to make this quick chapter 16 let's um i'm gonna have to set this up a little bit so i'm gonna have to read a little bit of scripture Jesus has told the disciples in verse 16, a little while and you shall not see me, and again a little while and you shall see me because I go unto the Father. He's talking about the resurrection of the dead. He's talking about going to the cross, the three days between the cross and the resurrection, but I will see you again. They don't have a clue. Again, he's told them clearly, plainly, according to Luke, that he's going to go to the cross, be killed, and raised again after the third day. Why they don't make that connection? Your guess is as good as mine. But now they're all talking among themselves and say, we don't get this, going away for a little while, coming back after a little while. What is all that about? Jesus says in verse 19, do you inquire among yourselves uh, of that I said a little while and you shall not see me, and again a little while and you shall see me? Notice the example he uses. Verily, verily, I say unto you that you shall weep and lament, they did when he was crucified, but the world shall rejoice and you shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. The world was glad when Jesus died, But the disciples were sad. But the disciples' sorrow was turned into joy. And here's the illustration he uses. A woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembers no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. The example Jesus uses about you're not going to see me for a little while, meaning the three days, and after that you'll see me again. The example he uses is a new birth Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen to him. He knows he's going to die spiritually. He knows he's going to pay the penalty for all of mankind's sins. He knows he's going to have to be born again. And he knows it's outside of his power. He knows he's putting himself into the hands of the Father. Just like we do. When we stand on the word. Now with that in context. Jesus goes on to say in verse 22. And now therefore. And you now therefore have sorrow. But I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. And in that day, please get, he's setting the stage, and in that day. What day is he talking about? The day when he sees them again, the day of the resurrection. The day when they're born again. The day after, the the day that they become Christians. Enter into a relationship with God through him. That's the day that he's talking about in verses 23 and 24. And in that day, you shall ask me nothing. This word ask is the word translated pray throughout the New Testament. He's talking about making requests. And in that day, you shall ask me nothing. One translation says, and in that day, you shall ask me no more questions. But then he goes further and says, what's verily, verily, I say to you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. This word, I ask, ask the Father in my name, is the same word that we've been looking at before. Call for, require, speak. To make a demand on. He, so he says, he says, in that day, the day of the resurrection, the day of the new birth, the day of the Christian, the day of the church. You won't be talking to me. You won't be making requests of me, Jesus. But whatsoever you speak, call for, require, demand of the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto, up till now, have you asked, spoken, nothing in my name. Ask, and you shall receive that your joy may be full. We won't take time to, to look at it, but we could turn back to Luke chapter 10 and see where the disciples, the 70, not the 12, but the 70, spoke in the name of Jesus and cast out devils. So when Jesus says, up till now you have asked or spoken nothing in my name, he's got to be talking about something different than that. Because he didn't just forget. He didn't say, up to now you have spoken nothing in my name. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah, that's not right. You have spoken some things in my name, haven't you? No, he's not talking about that. He's talking about a new position from which to speak the name of Jesus. He's not talking about speaking the name of Jesus as he delegated authority here on the earth while he was with the disciples. He's talking about speaking the name of Jesus from a position of being joined together with God through him. And that's a huge, huge difference. So much of the church world wishes it could go back to when Jesus was here on the earth. Jesus said, that's nothing to what you have now. Up to now, have you asked or spoken nothing in my name? Ask, call for, require, speak that you may receive and that your joy may be full. Folks, please notice Jesus keeps saying again and again and again what the purpose of speaking in his name is. is to do the works that he did. is to bring forth fruit and glorify God by bearing fruit. And it's to bring you joy. God wants your joy to be full, and it's through the use of his name that that takes place. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs or parables, but the time comes when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. What time is that after they're born again? Why is he speaking to them in parables? Because it wouldn't matter what he said. If they're spiritually dead men, they're not going to get it. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he receive them because they're spiritually discerned. That's 1 Corinthians 2.14. And in that day, the day that he speaks plainly of the Father, the day after they're born again, or the day when they're saved, when they enter into union with God through Christ. And in that day you shall ask in my name. Here's the word call for or require. Speak in my name. He's talking about a different position, folks. He's not just talking about the operation of your mouth. He's talking about a different position from which your words come. At that day you shall speak in my name and I say not to you that I will pray the Father for you. This is the same word in verse 23 that's translated pray where it says in that day you shall ask me nothing. This is that same word. It means request. Notice what he says. He says at that day, the day of the church, at that day you shall speak in my name. I say not unto you that I will pray or request of the Father for you. You don't need anybody to ask God for you, not even Jesus. Jesus. This is what's so bogus about most people's idea when the Bible says Jesus is making intercession for the saints at the right hand of the Father. A lot of people are thinking that Jesus is sitting there praying to his Father who's sitting right beside him. Well, what's he praying about? If that's what's going on, what's he praying about? Well, he's praying that we'd be finished. He's praying that we would be made complete. He's praying that we'd be strengthened. Really? So the blood of Jesus shed on the cross wasn't enough. We need prayer from heaven seriously folks if the the work's really not finished what's Jesus sitting down for well it's more comfortable for him to pray that's ridiculous he's not praying for you in heaven the intercession that he's making for the saints means very simply he's seated at the right hand of the father as the firstborn of the church the first begotten from the dead as proof that you're in Christ that you're one with the father And he'll never move from that position because he's the eternal proof. At that day you shall ask in my name, speak in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you because you've loved me. How do we know we love Jesus? Did you make him your Lord? That's more than these guys have done at the time Jesus says that. For the Father loves you because you've loved me. And have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. Same theme, start to finish. Chapter 17 starts his prayer, where he prays that the glory that, uh, that he had with the Father before the worlds began would be given back to him, and that's the glory that he gives us. All throughout the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters where Jesus is telling the disciples what has to be the most important thing for them to know before he goes to the cross, is very simply this. I'm coming back. You'll be in the same place with the Father that I am in. You will do the same works that I do because you exercise of authority in my name. You'll bear fruit that glorifies the Father through the exercise of authority in my name. And I've ordained it to be so. Whatever you speak to the Father about in my name, he'll give it to you. It's all about relationship, folks. You need to look at yourself in the mirror every day and say, I am in Christ. And because I'm in Christ, what I say comes to pass. Because that's the way God set it up. Not because you're so great and wonderful, but because that's the way God set it up. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to speak in the name of Jesus. Oh, Father, we declare that what Jesus said about us is true. We do abide in you, and your words do live on in us. Therefore, we say what we will, and it is done unto us. We say that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. We say that we're blessed above measure. We say, Father, that we're surrounded with favor as with a shield. We say that you're bringing people to us that we can minister to and be a witness to of your goodness and your mercy. We say that the power of God works and flows through us in a mighty, mighty way, like a river from heaven, we say that we are who you say we are. More than conquerors, the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, we say that the word of God is true in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, praise the Lord.